Happy Father's Day. Fatherlessness, fatherlessness in America is an epidemic, and boys especially are suffering uh, with listlessness, with not knowing direction in life, and lots of it has to do with fatherlessness, which has just been on the decline, and absentee fathers uh, have been increasing over the years. So it is worthy and right for us to honor fathers on Father's Day because of how important it is and how helpful, how great it is for a child to have a good father. The bar is not that high to be there and not to be perfect because nobody is perfect. And since your child will likewise not be perfect, you don't need to teach them perfection, but what a child needs to learn from their father is repentance. You see, good fathering is not so much what you tell the child directly as what they see over the years exhibited in your life. Yes, tell them the gospel. (laughs) Tell them the truth. But moreover, good fathering is demonstrating, not perfection, but demonstrating repentance. No one's born knowing how to repent, but you must teach your child by letting them see you say, I was angry, I was wrong. I'm sorry, and I will not do this again. Fatherless, fatherhood is not teaching them how to be perfect or some impossible standard, but simply not exasperating them and teaching them not how to be perfect, but how to be pursuing righteousness. Your children need to see you being repentant, but they also need to see you growing in your own faith. Good fathering is showing them what it looks like to pursue Christ so that the fruit of the Spirit can be exhibited in your own life towards them. And so good fathering is love, joy, peace, patience, (laughs) patience. It's the fruit of the Spirit is what good fatherhood is. So fathers... You who have stayed, who have sinned but been repentant, who have sinned but pursued Christ all the more, well done and carry on, my friends. Let us endure to the end this good work of fathering so that we can point our children and all of these children to Jesus Christ our Lord. It's clearly VBS week as well, and VBS is an exciting time. Uh, so many of you trusted Christ when you were at VBS. Something about the rigor of coming back every day and hearing the Bible verse again and hearing the same and memorizing it by the end of the week is so powerful to a child and so helpful for them trusting Christ. And many of you can pinpoint in your own memories special times when you were in VBS. And so VBS is critical for us. But likewise, I'd encourage you to come along, youth and adults, because you will be taught Scripture. (laughs) There will be Bible study there as well, and you too will have a chance to put your trust in Christ. But in addition to that, COVID has robbed us of so much community, the isolation that we've experienced. And whether you know it or not, you need to rebuild relationships, and there's only one way to do it, slowly and in a preponderance of time together. So by all means, teenagers, come, join in, make some friends, get to know some people. 
adults, come along. This will be the way that we slowly rebuild community that was robbed from us so quickly. I want to take a moment before we start our sermon today, and let's all bow in prayer for the success of our VBS. Let me ask you, this is rhetorical, of course, but let me ask you, how will you be praying for VBS this year? I might suggest to you that you pray for salvations. I might suggest that you pray that everything would go according to plan. The plan's really good. I might suggest to you that you pray we all be able to just roll with it when it doesn't go according to plan. You might should pray that families would become connected into our congregation and community through this VBS. You might pray that God would give you an opportunity to talk gloriously about him and to bear fruit yourself this week. Let's bow our heads. Take a moment and silently pray for the VBS this week. Father God, I pray that all of the plans that we've made would work out because all of our plans are to praise your name and teach your ways. I pray for all the effort and energy Allison Bland and all the rest of the team and everybody has already put into this VBS, let alone what we will this week. I pray that things wouldn't just go according to plan, but would go incredibly better than we would even have thought or planned for. I pray that you would give us all opportunities to trust you and bear fruit, to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord this week. I pray that families would be connected into this church for their benefit and their great joy. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you ready to hear from God today? Well, I've got good news for you. He's spoken to us. Open up your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 12. Jeremiah chapter 12. I'll be reading out of the Bible that's right in front of you, our house Bible, and it's on page 678, page 678 in our house Bibles. If you're using your own Bible where the CSB translation is what we're using, Jeremiah chapter 12, it's at the bottom of the page there on 678. The Dozier School for Boys ran for 111 years in Mariana, Florida, little panhandle town, Mariana, Florida. And the Dozier School for Boys that started in 1900 went to 2011 before it was shut down. This was a reform school. This was where you got sent if you did something wrong. It was a boys' school, but by school, uh, they meant prison light is what this place was. And the reports were never good. As early as 1914, the state inspection reports showed that there were boys and children in their teens wearing leg irons and things like that at this school. From the beginning, there was reports of abuse happening, of corporal punishment, not spankings, beatings, that deaths happened at this school and were common. 
And not just the 10 kids that died of the Spanish flu in 1918, so long this place was open, but many more for unexplained reasons, or many more who were said to have just run away, but were never seen from again. Boys were sent here for such crimes as truancy, trespassing, running away, smoking, incorrigibility. I've got, I have boys in my house that I feel like incorrigibility is something I could convict them of. Uh, today, in 1934, one 13-year-old boy was sent there for trespassing, and he died 38 days later. This place that marketed itself as a school that was supposed to be a school was put together with no oversight. Reports from the 19-teens all the way up through the 1980s showed and described the abuse that was going on in there. Leg irons in 1914, beaten with belts in 1968, a old drying machine, clothes dryer machine fan that had a belt attached to it to whip children as they were sitting there. It was one of the artifacts found. 1982, the state report said that there were boys hogtied in solitary confinement. It was only finally shut down in 2011 after it failed an inspection. 111 years this evil went on. Well, there was a cemetery there, but the cemetery was closed in 1952. So it was an old thing and a very early thing for like orphans who got sent there. Because, in fact, there were people sent there not just for crimes, but simply orphans were sent there sometimes when no one knew what else to do with them. The cemetery was closed in 1952, but since the closure of the school in 2011, University of Central Florida students and archaeology teams have been excavating and first, they were looking into some unmarked graves in the cemetery, but then they started finding some, some more burials unmarked outside of the cemetery. Then they started finding the remains of some more boys further on and in strange places around the site. Then they found some remains of boys in the swamps to the north of camp, Florida swamps. Not buried, just remains in the swamp. What kind of evil went on at this place? 2019, just two years ago, Colson Whitehead won a Pulitzer Prize for a book called The Nickel Boys, in which he dramatizes this and recounts what went on here. Such evil demands an answer. Such evil demands justice. Would that were the only evil that happened in the world ever? But you'll recall even more prominently the Catholic Church abuse scandal that was slowly broken by the Boston Globe after a reporter talked to one man about how he was abused as a boy, and then another, and then another, and then another. And the roots of that abuse system went so deep and so far. You might also know what happens in Southern Baptist life. This system where a pastor can be accused of something, some, some abuse happened, something happened, and the church kind of knows about it. The church goes, wait a second, something's not right here but can't quite report it, and when confronted, the pastor resigns quickly, and the victim says, I don't want to have to go through the justice system. He's out of ministry. Surely that will be enough. I just want to move on with my life. But it turns on that pastor went on to another church somewhere else, 
And if that church didn't do its diligence and call, or if the church that they called said, ah, we don't really, we didn't investigate, so we don't really, we better not say anything, we don't want to malign somebody, and it happens again, and it happens again. We've long since known that there are predators and wolves who prey on children and mean to do so, that move around from church to church without churches contacting each other or having much of a network to know what was going on. You could see how this would happen. And it has. Even one of our own members has described to me how his father, and not abuse with children, but his father was a longtime pastor, long ago, would have an affair at a church, and would leave quickly and have an affair at a church, and would leave quickly and would have an affair at a church, and an affair, and an affair, and an affair. And this friend of ours, as an adult, still struggles to reconcile. How do I talk about this? Because I know people who came to Christ through his witness and through his testimony, but I also know houses that were broken up and lives that were shattered through his behavior. Such evil demands an answer and demands justice. And this is what we get in Jeremiah, the justice of God. We're going to start reading in Jeremiah chapter 12, God's answer. As I read, I'm going to stop periodically as we go throughout to explain. So I'm not going to read it to the end and then explain it all. I'll stop as I go. So just hold, it, hold your Bible in your hand and stay with me. Jeremiah says, You will be righteous, Lord, even if I bring a case against you. Yet I wish to contend with you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the treacherous live at ease? You planted them, and they've taken root. They've grown, and they've produced fruit. You are even on their lips, but you are far from their conscience. Jeremiah cries out, and he says, this question that we have all asked at some point, why does the way of the wicked prosper? This question that is so important in Scripture, this is not the only place that it is asked. The question of evil, this problem of trouble, why do evil people seem to prosper? It's all over Scripture. You might recall Job has to ask the question of the problem of evil, though in a reverse sense, why has so much evil happened to a man who hasn't done wrong? Habakkuk, the prophet, cries out to God and says, there's evil everywhere and injustice and abuse going on all over the place. Where is the retribution? Where is the justice, God? There are so many psalms in which David cries out about the injustice that is going on around him. Again and again, prophets of Scripture, people of Scripture, cry out to God. You, dear Christian, have perhaps in your seasons of life cried out to God and said, why? And Jeremiah does it perfectly. His cry out to God is not, okay, there's some injustice, so I don't believe in God anymore. I'm done with this. I'm out. You're not good. You're not real. No, he says, you will be righteous, Lord, even if I bring a case against you. Jeremiah begins with, I know that you are good and that you are righteous, but I still got to ask, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why is it that all these treacherous people live at ease? Why is it that they look like they've just been planted in the best soil, they're growing roots, they're producing fruit, everything's coming up rosy for them? They're even saying, Lord, Lord. They talk about God. It says, you are even on their lips, but you are far from their consciences, from their hearts. They walk around, they go, yeah, Jesus is the Lord. Amen. They don't care. 
They do evil. Verse 3, as for you, Lord, you know me. You see me. You test whether my heart is with you. Drag the wicked away like sheep to slaughter, and let them apart, or set them apart for the day of killing. For how long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither because of the evil of its residents? Animals and birds have been swept away, for the people have said, Oh, he cannot see what our end will be. These people say, mm, There's no God. They take a moment before they do great evil to calculate. Is anybody watching? Is there a red light cam at this stop before I do something? Am I about to get caught? And each one of them going into heinous evil say, first of all, mm, now there's no God. He doesn't see what's going to happen in the future. We can do what we want to. Jeremiah says, you searched me out, and you know that I'm devoted to you. And then Jeremiah does something powerful. He calls for their judgment. But after all, judgment and justice are essentially the same words. We often think in our own minds, justice, good. Judgment, bad. Justice and judgment are essentially the same. Judgment needs to come down on these people if there's going to be justice for those abused by them. There needs to be punishment if there's going to be justice, justice and judgment the same. And so, Jeremiah rightly calls to God and says, let them come to the day of judgment, the day of killing, he even calls it here. Verse 5, the Lord's response, you might see that the title is, well, Jeremiah has made his case he said, God, I know you're righteous, and you're going to be righteous no matter what, and you're good, and you're going to be good no matter what, but I just got to ask, why is there so much evil, and why does it look like you haven't done anything about it? You're familiar with that question? Well, if you've ever asked it, there's an answer here from Scripture today. You ready? Verse 5, God says to Jeremiah, if you have raced with runners and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? If you stumble in a peaceful land, what will you do in the thickets of the Jordan? It's not the response you were expecting from God. What if you pray and cry out to God and the response that you get is not the response that you were wanting or expected? See, one of the reasons why Jeremiah is crying out is just in the chapter before, which Trevor covered last Sunday night in chapter 11. Right at the end of it, chapter 11, you can see there from verse 21 on to 23, the people of his hometown are starting to plot to kill him. That's what Jeremiah is crying out about. These people have made it public. They've been talking to each other. There were some quiet backroom meetings. You know, one person comes over to another person and says, let's kill him. Let's get rid of him. We're done with this guy prophesying against us. And then they talk to a few more people, and they talk to a few more people, make a couple phone calls, and now they've started, no violence has been done to him, but they are planning on killing him, and they are seriously planning on killing him. And Jeremiah cries out to God, but God's response to Jeremiah is, if you've raced with runners and they've outrun you, how can you compete with horses? God says, in effect, to Jeremiah, is that really all you can take? Because there's a lot more that you're going to suffer for my name. It's a powerful response and a true one. As you read on through the rest of Jeremiah, he is going to be beaten. He is going, all that's happened so far is he's been threatened. He's going to be beaten He's going to be thrown in prisons. He's going to be thrown in a well as a prison. He's going to be kidnapped. He's going to be abused in all kinds of different ways. So God says here, early on in the book, only in chapter 12, if that's all you got, how are you going to continue on 
in my service because he has more. How, if you stumble in a peaceful land, what are you going to do in the thickets of Jordan? Jeremiah, you see, is not just a prophet to deliver God's word. Jeremiah is to He is the prophecy himself. He is the prophetic sign. And the way he is going to be rejected by Israel reflects how Israel rejected God himself. And so his whole ministry is going to be painfully symbolic of the way uh, way Israel rejects God. God says to him, is that all you got, Jeremiah? You haven't begun to suffer. It's possible that for you and I, when we run into a little bit of struggling, we suddenly fall to pieces and are distraught. In my house, we call this turning it up to 11. You know, on a scale of 1 to 10, how dramatic are you about something? All the way up to 11. We're going on off past the scale. It's like spinal tap. All the way up to 11. I have one son. We'll keep him nameless for our sake. That kid, he will turn it up to 11 over nothing. I mean, the, the other kids are having dessert, and he hasn't finished his dinner yet. Can I have some dessert? Well, just, just finish your dinner, and then yes, of course you can. And suddenly, he's on the floor. Ah, I guess you don't want me in the family anymore. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> How did you get to that? <laughs> just finish your green beans, boy. And then <laughs> I just want you to, I, welcome to dessert turns it up to 11 over nothing, and it's possible that you and I are like this. All that's happened to Jeremiah is that he has been verbally abused. He's been threatened. He knows the people are out to get him, and suddenly he is crying out against God, saying, why do the wicked prosper? And God's answer is, what else you got, Jeremiah? Because my calling for your life is to endure much suffering, but we know, and Jeremiah knew, that God's calling for His life ended in glory, as does ours, but there was more suffering to be done. I do not want to belittle for you some of the suffering that some of you have been through. Some of you have been through deep and profound seasons of anguish, difficulty, and violence. I don't mean to belittle that, but it's possible that both are true that we, you and I, have gone through difficult seasons that warranted an eight or nine or ten response, and it's also entirely possible that you and I have gone through a little setback, a little health scare, a little financial trouble, a little difficulty amongst friends, and we immediately went to 11 laying on the ground going, oh no! And the answer from God is... (laughs) There's some real difficulties to be suffered. If you can't make it through this, how will you make it through the serious difficulties in life? After all, God's calling for Jeremiah and God's calling for us is not some extraordinary victory. God's calling for Jeremiah's life is not that Jeremiah will come out at the end of his life winning. God's call for Jeremiah is that Jeremiah would endure to the end. And God's calling for your life is that you would remain faithful to Him to your last breath. These present difficulties, friends, the power of the Holy Spirit is on you, and you can endure this too. And this likewise you can endure and hold on to Him. You don't have to arrive at the end of life winning (laughs) in perfect shape. You don't have to 
if life were the pummel horse in gymnastics, you don't have to jump off the end and land and stick it perfectly. God's calling for your life is that you would endure in trusting Him no matter what, no matter the scuffs, no matter the difficulties, and no matter the pain, that you would hold on to trusting Him, and Jeremiah does that. God's response, first of all, is, if you've raced with the runners and they've worn you out, how are you going to compete with the horses? Verse 6, even your brothers, your own father's family, even they were treacherous to you, God says to Jeremiah. Even they have cried out loudly after you. Do not have confidence in them, though they speak well of you. And now God talks about Himself. It's an important turn. God says, I have abandoned my house. I have deserted my inheritance. I have handed the love of my life over to her enemies. My inheritance has behaved towards me like a lion in the forest. She has roared against me, therefore I hate her. Is my inheritance like a hyena to me? Are birds of prey circling her? Go gather all the wild animals and bring them to devour her. Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They have trampled my plot of land. They have turned my desirable plot into a desolate wasteland. They have made it a desolation. It mourns desolate before me. All the land is desolate, but no one takes it to heart, God says. One of the answerings to suffering and difficulties, to injustice, that God always gives throughout Scripture is to turn your attention away from yourself and towards God Himself. You see, in Jesus' life on earth, in His time here on earth, His disciples could not understand and the crowds could not understand when He said to them, I am going to suffer and die. I came here for the purpose of enduring and suffering and dying for your sake and rising again. They couldn't understand it. They couldn't understand a God who was suffering. Even the disciples who already knew that He was the Messiah come down from heaven, they, they just didn't get that God Himself would suffer. They hadn't read this passage properly by the power of the Holy Spirit and in light of the New Testament. Jeremiah says to God, oh, how I'm suffering. And God says to Jeremiah, let me tell you about my suffering about how I brought this people Israel out of slavery all by myself. I, I, I brought them out by these powerful signs and wondering, by my power, not theirs. I led them out of the wilderness and through the wilderness by my power, not theirs. It was all miraculously done. When I brought them into the land, even though they didn't think they could take the land, and they were right, they couldn't take the land. They were former slaves. It is God by His own power that He delivered them the whole land. Jericho, a symbol of this. How God would deliver it. How God did all of this. His nation, His land, His people, He put it all together. And God has to say here with great anguish, anger over their sin. He is right to be angry, but He's also grieved about it in anguish, you can read here. I have abandoned my house. You're struggling, Jeremiah. Let me tell you about struggling. God did all of this for His people and had His hand of protection over them. And as to say, Jeremiah, I have had to remove my hand of protection away from my people so that all these opportunistic nations around them would come 
and be my judgment on them. God is grieved over Israel here. God talks about His suffering. If we are to understand suffering properly, we are going to have to understand it in the light of our God who has suffered for us. We say at funerals here, I say at a funeral here, many funerals that you've been to perhaps, if you've seen one, if you've attended one, I often say, you know, it stands to reason today, even with a casket of a dear loved one right in front of me here, I say, listen, it stands to reason that we are all grieved here today at this person's passing, but that the one who is grieved the most is the person who loved this person the most. Yes, friends are grieved. Family is grieved. A widow is grieved. Stands to reason that the person who has loved this one the most is the most grieved. So who's the one who has loved that person and most grieved? It's God Himself. As symbolic for all of us in His grief over Lazarus. It wasn't just Lazarus. God did not make us for death nor mean it for us. No one has loved you more than Him. And so no one is more grieved at our death. The good news for us is that God was so grieved. The good news for us is that He was the one who was grieved into action. And he did something about it. Even before we were born, God made a way for us. Even though we may die, yet we will live in Christ. Likewise, if you want to understand this passage properly, it stands the reason that the person who is most hurt by a given sin is the person who was most directly sinned against. Yes? You know, an adultery will grieve. It is a sin against a spouse. But you know it will also hurt the children and the rest of the family and have shock waves throughout friends and in the community. But you know who is most directly sinned against and who's most grieved by the sin is God himself. So Jeremiah says, God, why is there all this injustice? And God says, first of all, Jeremiah, you haven't seen nothing yet. Second of all, he says, and let me tell you about what it is to grieve over sin. Because God is most grieved as to have to bring judgment against those who are special to him, Israel. See, now you know the heart of God so loving and yet must bring judgment because he abandons them. These shepherds come in, these wolves who come in acting like shepherds to take over their nation and control them. He says in verse 11, they've made it all desolate, but no one takes it to heart. How grievous is this? They experience the judgment of God, have Jeremiah the prophet there saying, the reason why everything is going so badly is because you have abandoned God. And so now he has removed his hand of protection from you and you are experiencing his judgment. And not a person takes it to heart. No one listens. Verse 12. Over all the barren heights in the wilderness, the destroyers have come, for the Lord has a sword that devours from one end of the earth to the other. No one has peace. They have sown wheat, they've harvested thorns. They have exhausted themselves, but have no profit. Be put to shame by your harvests, because the Lord's burning anger. Likewise for us, a third answer 
to Jeremiah's question is, you know, it's easy, Jeremiah, to say that the grass is greener. And sure, uh, acts of evil, cheating, it can prosper you ever so briefly. Taking advantage of somebody can profit you for just a little while. Taking advantage of your employees, that can profit you for a while, but not for long. God says to Jeremiah, here's what's going to happen at the end of the day. They're going to work. They're going to work to exhaustion, to no profit. What God says is, Jeremiah, there is justice. It is already here. It is natural and intrinsic. Sin brings about its own consequences, even if you don't see it. It brings about its own consequences, but likewise, there's a consequence of God. Be put to shame by your harvest because of the Lord's burning anger. This this godly grief is something we all experience when we come to reckon with our own sins and repent of them and turn to God. The only person who ever actually turns from their sin and puts their trust in God is the person who is first grieved over their sins, is the person who looks at the harvest of their lives, the fruit of their sin, and is shamed by it, and then turns to God. Verse 14, This is what the Lord says concerning all my evil neighbors who attack the inheritance that I bequeathed on my people Israel. I am about to uproot them from their land. I will uproot the house of Judah from them. After I have uprooted them, I will once again have compassion on them and return each one to his inheritance and to his land. If they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, or Jesus is Lord, just as they taught my people to swear by Baal, they will be built up among my people. However, if they will not obey, then I will uproot and destroy that nation. This is the Lord's declaration. Something very powerful happens here at the end. God declares, first of all, all of those evil nations and neighbors, the Babylonians, the Phoenicians, uh, the Philistines who are around Israel and who are attacking Israel, all those who God brings up, God stirs them up to bring judgment against Israel, but God is going to bring judgment against them for their evil ways. This is spelled out most specifically in the book of Habakkuk. Or Habakkuk cries out and says, God, why is Israel so evil? And God says, hold tight, I'm raising up an army to come and crush them. And Habakkuk says, whoa, 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 <laughs> let's not be hasty here. How are you going to use an evil nation? And God says, oh, don't bring, I'm going to bring judgment on all of the nations fairly for their evil action, and so I'm going to bring judgment on Babylon. Have you guys ever been to Babylon? No, because of God's judgment. It's no longer there. And God says he's going to bring judgment against those nations who take over Israel, but here's what's most powerful here, verse 15, God, talking to all of those other nations, says, after I have uprooted them, I will once again have compassion on them and return each one to his inheritance and to his land. If they will diligently learn the ways of my people to This is to swear by God or to cry out by God as the Lord lives. That's a declaration that this God is a living God. It is the same as our declaration, Jesus is Lord. If these nations, these other peoples, if they will learn to live by my ways, 
and swear by my name, just like they taught Israel how to swear by these other gods and worship these other gods. But if they will now learn by my people how to obey me, what does he say? They will be built up among my people. However, if they will not obey, then I will uproot and destroy the nation. This is the Lord's declaration. You know, baptism for us today is such a powerful symbol of this. God cries out long before Christ comes here to Jer- in Jeremiah. He says, through Jeremiah and to Jeremiah and to all of us, anyone out there in any of these nations, if they will walk in my ways and swear by my name, then I will give them a place among my people. They will be made as if they are adopted into my family is what God says. Friends, if you want to become a Christian today, it is as easy as what we represent in baptism when I only ever ask people who are going to be baptized two questions. I ask them, what is your confession? Why don't you see if you can answer these questions for me today? Go ahead and try, dear congregation members. What's your confession? And are you going to obey Him all the days of your life? This is, there's a promise that comes along with this. If this is true, and none of us can know for you if this is true because we can't see into your heart, but if you believe and choose to follow after Christ with your life, He will establish you into His family. This is His work and His promise towards all of us. God offers this future to everyone. So what do we need to do today? Well, first, understand that Christian patience and endurance pay off every time. Christian endurance and patience pay off every time. You may have to be patient far longer than you wanted to be. You may have to endure far more than you wanted to endure, but I tell you every time, Christian patience and endurance pay off. We are every Monday patiently awaiting the Supreme Court to hand down the Dobbs versus Jackson women's health decision. Is it going to be this Monday? Come on, any day now. I'll take that decision. I'd like to know if finally the 1962 decision of Roe versus Wade is going to be turned over. We have been patiently waiting on this for a long, long time. You might recall in 1992, the Supreme Court case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. There was such great hope then Do you remember this? I was a child, so I don't. I'll just let you know. (laughs) Do you remember this? Planned Parenthood versus Casey, 1992. There's such hope that Roe versus Wade would be overturned. And it wasn't. But then again, even then and now, our hope is not in a court. We have such great hopes now for the Dobbs decision in 2022. But even if it doesn't come down to get rid of Roe versus Wade... Even if it doesn't come down our way, I tell you that Christian patience and endurance always pay off. The pro-life movement never went away. Every year since Roe versus Wade, there were those who were saying, just give another year or two. These people, they'll, they'll just learn to accept it. They'll just learn to accept it. We never learned to accept it. I tell you, Christian patience and endurance pay off. You need to do the right thing and trust the Lord even if you don't get what you want right now. That's Jeremiah's witness. 
Jeremiah knows that the Lord is good. He starts off saying that. He does cry out to the Lord, and it's okay to cry out to the Lord. In fact, all the Psalms give us the language. David writes those Psalms so that we can know how to cry out to the Lord and say, God, it's just, why is this so bad? It's okay to cry out to the Lord, but we cry out to the Lord in faith, saying, God, why is it so bad? But I know you're good. So I tell you, doing the right thing and trusting the Lord, no matter what suffering, no matter what difficulty, no matter what must be endured, is always the right thing to do because Christian patience and endurance always pay off because God has promised that they would. It is possible that your patience and endurance must go on until death. This is also in Scripture. After all, God makes a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they don't see fulfilled in their lifetime, but they do see fulfilled in God's timing. You recall how powerful and important it is when Israel, the nation, leaves Egypt. They take Jacob's bones with them because he knew even before he died that they weren't going to stay in Egypt. God was going to deliver a promised land. So they took him with him as a symbol that even if it takes generations even if it's after your death, Christian patience and endurance pay off. Trust Christ and do what is right. Second, do not turn to the ways of the world to get what you want, but wait on the Lord. You've got you to gotta assume there were times when Jeremiah was thinking, all these people are just talking, all these neighbors, even his own family. They're chattering. They're going from house to house saying, all right, here's the strategy. Here's the plan. Here's what we're going to do. You've got to imagine Jeremiah was tempted to go, you know what? I'm going to get even. You've got to imagine Jeremiah was tempted to say, well, you know what they're doing. Hold on a second. I'll start my own rumors. I'll build up my own side and my own team. It is never appropriate for us, while we are waiting on the Lord, to use the ways of the world to try and get what we want. If God has called us to wait on Him, then it is not appropriate for us to take matters into our own hands. That we wait on the Lord doesn't mean that we do nothing. Clearly, Jeremiah is obeying Christ and following after Him. We are waiting on the Lord, and we're going to do VBS this week. We are waiting on the Lord, and we're not going to stop sharing the gospel until Christ returns. We are waiting on the Lord, and we are constantly active, trying to bring about justice in any way that we can. We are waiting on the Lord, but we're trying to do the right thing. One way to understand this is with the Southern Baptist Convention uh, right now. There it is. I promised you I'd tell you about the Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting. I was just there. We've had this trouble with abuse that has been exposed. The worst of it was that certain members of the executive committee, I'll need a whole other Sunday to explain to you a Southern Baptist uh, organization chart and all, all the different organizations and pieces, but suffice it to say, there were some who were in power in administrative roles that had been saying for decades oh, we can't establish a list of abusers. Uh, they hear about all these things. They hear these reports, not just news articles that are out there, but also people who they've just heard about and know it's true, but those people weren't prosecuted. Because, like, only 10% of abuse cases get, actually go to trial. And even of that, like, 3% of them actually end up on a sex offender registry. So what about everybody else? Surely we, amongst ourselves and with our fellow churches, can do good diligence to say to each other, no, that actually happened, and we'll stand by that, and you don't need to hire this person because that person's a wolf. That person admitted to doing it. Even though there wasn't a trial or the trial's in progress right now, you need to know, just because they haven't been convicted, it happened, and <laughs> they did this evil, and we can testify to it. 
for decades, the executive committee was saying, well, we can't do that, we can't keep a list, we can't keep a registry, we could get sued for libel. And they prioritized again and again legal issues over abuse victims. Let me just say that if there's some big problem like abuse going on, and your only answer is, ah, my hands are tied, there's nothing I can do, then you neither have the creativity or the moral compassion to be fit to lead. That's the end of it. We need somebody else because there is something we can do, surely. What we found out in an investigation this past year is that those guys were, who had been saying for two decades, can't keep a list, can't keep a list. They had been keeping their own list to make sure they didn't accidentally hire these people. But they weren't telling any of the churches about it. Even before the convention, all of those people had either resigned or been fired. Even going into the convention this past week, anyone indicted by that investigation was no longer in power and out. But what happens most importantly at these conventions is this. We elect a president, just a pastor, usually a pastor, that doesn't have to be a pastor, from one of the churches to be the convention president for two years. We meet every year. We elect every other year we do a president. You generally serve for two years. But the president doesn't have a lot of power. He's just a pastor who goes and preaches at a lot of churches throughout that year or two. But the one power that he does have is he appoints trustees over each one of our mission boards, our North American mission board, our international mission board, our seminaries. We've got five of those. He appoints trustees over those. The trustees have the power to make the institutional change in these institutions. So it's awfully important that the president be a kind of person who's in favor of investigation and wants if there's any kind of abuse going on, it needs to be brought to light and dealt with. And in fact, there was one presidential candidate who was very adamant about this, and there was one presidential candidate who talked about this abuse scandal like it was a sideshow distracting us from missions, and what we needed to do is just get back to Scripture. And Really, the difference isn't between whether there were like conservatives and liberals. In Southern Baptist life, everybody's, if you're still going to Baptist church, you're probably awfully conservative at this point. At least all of ours are. But the difference between the two sides is one side really wanted to do what is right and make change, even if it was costly, which is the right thing to do. If there's sin in the congregation, if somebody is hurt and abused, it's not godly for us to say, well, you know, we can't get distracted from our mission. I mean, part of the mission is to take care of the members of the flock. It's not against the mission. These things go hand in hand. What happened is that some of these wolves in the denomination created an organization for themselves they called the Conservative Baptist Network. The implication being, if you're not a part of their network, you're not conservative. And they tried to take the vast political divide in American politics, which is really serious and really distinct, and import it into Southern Baptist life and say, everybody who wasn't them must be secretly liberal. It just wasn't true. What they were doing is they were using the ways of the world to try and bring about the changes they thought needed to happen, which was essentially them being in control. It is never appropriate to use the ways of the world to achieve the purposes of God. If something is right, do right. If something is wrong, do not do wrong. If there is a rumor going around, you don't have to be a part of it. If someone is trying to build a coalition of whispers, Shut it down yourself and say, I'm out. You don't have to do anything other than do what is right by God, follow the Lord, and patiently endure. And you watch. 
and see that the Holy Spirit is absolutely among his congregation, and he will lead it rightly. Another way to say this is James, the Apostle James says in his letter, the anger of man cannot bring about the righteousness God requires. You can't get angry enough or schemy enough, strategic enough to bring about God's good righteousness. All there is for us is Jesus is Lord. I am going to obey him and patiently endure and wait on the Lord like he has called me to. I'm very happy with how the Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting went. The, I call them the baddies. <laughs> the baddies, <laughs> the wolves, lost everything decisively. It was all like 70-30. I mean, there was just no chance of it going any other way. Uh, anyone who's been critically abused of anybody, anything so far is gone and out of power and out of church pulpits and, and out. Likewise, we passed some motions uh, the congregationally, uh, sorry, as a whole Southern Baptist Convention, we passed some motions apologizing to abuse victims these last 20 years when we hadn't been taking action, but had all just been accepting the answer. I guess our hands are tied. We can't do anything. Making an apology to them was a big deal. We appointed a new task force to look into how else we can change rules, and we also voted to create a third-party system that keeps a list of these people. It may seem strange to you that we would keep a list of people who are credibly abused but haven't actually gone through the criminal justice process. We do want to make sure we don't hire on anyone who's gone through the criminal justice process. But the fact that there are so many more and that we are trusting of our other congregations and can depend on them and can at least go to a list and see before, if we're going to hire on another young associate pastor someday, they can at least go check this list and, hey, wait a second, your name's on that list. I'm going to make some phone calls. <laughs> I'm going to call those churches and say, you, you, you put his name on here. Did it happen? Yeah, this person told us it happened. This person, what, he confessed. They just didn't want to go into legal proceedings because it was going to hurt him so bad. Well, we're clearly not going to hire that person either. This is important and will be helpful to the churches, and I'm proud of what we're doing. I'm proud of the way Southern Baptists have elected not to use the ways of the world, but to do what is right, to seek justice, and to continue to share the gospel cooperatively as a group of churches. Our international missionaries led hundred and something like 160,000 people to Christ around the world this past year. This is an incredible missionary organization. We are just Talitha Baptist Church Independent, but we partner up with all these other Baptist churches to help lead 160,000 people to Christ around the world this year, and we're not done. I'm very happy with how things went, and we'll talk about this again next year as well. But a few applications for you before we go. It's okay to cry out to God. Crying out to God itself is an act of faith in God. All these psalms were given to you so that you would have the words and the language on how to cry out to God. We cry out to God. We know that many times He answers our prayers, and many other times He gives us the answer we need, even if it's not exactly the answer that we wanted. But He always gives us love and compassion and truth. And the truth was God was creating an opportunity for Israel and for all the other nations to come and trust Him. That's why Jeremiah had to endure what he had to but just for a season. Jeremiah endures it no longer. He has his eternal life. So what can we do today? Well, what you can do is this. Repent of your sin. See just how shocking and vast and joyful is the grace of God. 
See how, not just to Israel, who he sends prophet and prophet to and is patient and patient with them, hoping they'll repent. Even his judgment is to draw them back to him. In everything, he wants to draw them to him. But that's not all. He does this to all of the other nations as well and to you. Take a moment and consider how shockingly vast is the grace of God towards you too that He has been patient for so many years that you should come to Him, that you should cry out to Him and follow Christ. What can we do today? Turn from your sins and put your trust in Christ. What can you do today? Well, if you are prone to turning it up to 11 over the very smallest thing, instead, trust Christ, my friends. Patiently wait and endure. Trust Christ. Do what is right. Cry out to God. Speak what is right and wait. And then yourself be found righteous before God and working within His will. If you're going to be bearing fruit and it's either the fruit of evil or the fruit of the Holy Spirit, why don't you make the fruit be the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life? So what are we going to do today? You who think it's appropriate to use worldly methods and means to get your way, even if it's a good way, even if it's that you want something good, you need to know that you're going to be put to shame. Anyone who uses the methods of the world, even to reach righteous conclusions, will be put to shame. What should you do today? Wait on the Lord. Amen. Seek justice. Endure hardship. You will receive your reward. And you, all of you, who turn to Christ today, you will find forgiveness. But just like God calls out to all the nations, you will find forgiveness when you actually turn from your evil ways to follow after Him. Father God, I thank You that You have been so patient I thank you that you're the one who has been patiently waiting on us, not us on you. I thank you that you are the one who has endured such grief from us, not us from you. Father God, we who are believers who have been called by Christ and joined into your family, we thank you that you are so kind to us. We thank you that you are so patient to us. We cry out today that the joy of the Lord is our strength because there's nothing else that we take joy in besides you that will endure. We thank you that you've spoken so clearly to us. Now I pray that you would give us the strength to do what is right, to turn towards you to wait on the Lord, to endure what must be endured, and to put our hope in Jesus Christ until He comes again. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.